Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by our friends at SaveWithBruce.com. Bruce, what am I saying? Our friends, our friends are me and you and this other guy, right? Freak out, freak out, because if you're looking to save some money, like consolidating some debt, you want to buy a new house, maybe no money down, maybe you don't have perfect credit. You gotta have perfect credit, right, comrade? No, sir. You know the deal. You can get into a brand new house with absolutely no money down, and your new house payment, it's gonna be less than your current rent. Find out how easy it is to get out of an apartment and into a brand new house at SaveWithBruce.com. And maybe you'd like to take the family on a little summer vacation. Macho, how does no house payments until September sound? What are you saying? I can save two months worth of payments? Like, skip them? Is that what you're talking about here? You know it, brother. We're talking no payments in July, no payments in August. You're done until September 1st. And come September 1st, you're going to have a better mortgage. Find out how easy it is to save your family tens of thousands of dollars. Get rid of your credit card debt, upgrade some things around the house, even buy a house with no money down at SaveWithBruce.com. That's SaveWithBruce.com. What's that legal information they need? NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, yeah. Teamwork makes the dream work. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Man, what do you always say? Busy as a one-armed paper hanger? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, okay. Well, something like that. I'm, I'm hanging paper with one arm. Well, I tell you what we're doing. We're, uh, we're giving ourselves high fives and pats on the back because we had a tremendous episode last week on Sable. We had lots of fun talking about Sable, and it's on track to set some new download records for us, and that caught me off guard. But it does prove... 
20 years later, man, she's still over like Rover. It, it is absolutely incredible. It just kind of goes to show that the audience from then that everybody was talking about, they were talking about her then. She was over then and still over today. Well, and speaking of over, we are over in Pittsburgh. We're completely sold out, but there is still a chance to come see us in Rochester on July 7th. And we've got tickets on sale right now at brucepritchard.com. Don't miss us Saturday, July 7th in Rochester, New York. And of course, we're going to be in Gramercy Theater in Manhattan on August 18th. Of course, that's your SummerSlam weekend. And you can get all these tickets at brucepritchard.com. But we've got two big announcements that people have been waiting on. Bruce, you start us off. Okay, well, we're going to start off in Boston on Sunday, October 21st. Uh, we're going to be at the world famous Kowloon comedy club. And I'm so excited. Uh, Andy Wong over there at the Kowloon's, the entire Wong family at Kowloon's have invited us in. We're going to be doing our show live and in color on Sunday, October 21st. Tickets are on sale right now. Head on over to brucepritchard.com for all the information. Bruce, I got to tell you, I've always wanted to do a show in black and white. You're always saying we're doing shows live and in living color. I'd like to do black and white death color no no we gotta be in living color well we're gonna be in living color when we come to the united kingdom bruce this has been something people have been asking for for a long time and of course when you made a trip over last year you were solo dolo but this year the tag team champions of podcasting are back what's going on man wait a minute you mean the two-time two-time podcast champion of the world we can finally announce it okay we are coming to the uk in december and as you said both of us are coming this time and we're going to birmingham or birmingham uh london bristol and liverpool the home of the beatles and we are going to be there december 6th 7th 8th and 9th and i'm looking for oh jesus christ just so so looking forward to this. Well, and here's the thing. We're not just doing a show. It's going to be like the ultimate fan experience at this event. You're going to get two shows for the price of one. Not only something to wrestle with live, but you're also going to get a debut tour of the UK's newest promotion, Fight Forever Wrestling. Our friends and listeners to the show, Jonathan and Simon, they have created this wonderful promotion, Fight Forever Wrestling. They're brothers who are, in fact, diehard wrestling fans, just like me and you. And now they've got a vision to bring some of the hottest names in the industry who are going to provide you with the ultimate fan experience. So let's talk about who all is going to be there. Besides just Bruce and Conrad, you're getting the guy everybody's talking about right now. The man behind all in himself, the American nightmare, Cody, plus his wife, Brandy Rhodes. Of course, Flip Gordon's going to be there. And a lot of the top stars from the UK wrestling scene, Jimmy Havoc, who you're familiar with from MLW, Zach Gibson, Flash Morgan Webster, Millie McKenzie, Joe Hendry, and Rampage Brown. These names are going to keep on coming, and there's still some big surprises to be announced in the coming weeks. But seriously, UK fans, these shows are can't miss. You're not only getting Bruce and I, you're getting a wrestling show with all these top stars. Check it out right now, and you can do this over at fightforeverwrestling.com. Tickets are on sale today. And of course you can snag them at brucepritchard.com. And we've even got one of our silly domain names. You know, we're the king of silly domain names here. You can type in UKSTW.com. That's UKSTW.com. And as if this wasn't enough, they really turned the offer up on this one. Did they not Bruce? Yeah, they did because there's a whole lot more than even the shows. You said there's 
uh, a human, humongous wrestling extravaganza. And you talk about the ultimate fan experience. Well, we mean it because UK fans, how would you like to sit with Conrad and me and watch the Fight Forever Wrestling Show? Well, you're going to be able to do it with free beer, free pizza, and a free goodie bag and a fast track VIP access to all the talent on the show. This is our box of gimmicks tickets, and there's only 12 available each night. Now, these tickets are going to go fast, so don't wait. Get to fightforeverwrestling.com or brucepritchard.com right now. Tickets on sale right now, and you are not going to want to miss this. I am psyched for this trip because, well, it's you and me in the U.K., Come on, come see us in December, but get your tickets today and uh, snag one of those box of gimmicks tickets. There's only 12 there. And my shortcut, of course, UKSTW.com. That's UKSTW.com. And Bruce, I feel like it's time, man. We should just get right into it. Let's talk a little bit about King of the Ring. We're right here on the 20 year anniversary as you and I tape this. When you're listening on the 29th, yesterday was the 20 year anniversary. What a historic show this is. Am I right, Bruce? Uh, I think it goes down in history probably as Mick Foley's defining night and one that he will never, ever forget. But, you know, even going back, the the last two matches on this show were pretty damn good. And I enjoyed, the, I enjoyed going back and watching this one. No doubt about it, man. It's one heck of a card. It is a tremendous pay-per-view I, I can't recommend it enough it doesn't get talked about as much because of the one big match and of course we're going to get there but there's so much other stuff on here so if you haven't already go fire up the wwe network one day this week and watch king of the ring 98 as we said yesterday was the 20 year anniversary it goes down at the civic arena in pittsburgh pennsylvania and pittsburgh has always been really a hotbed for wrestling or at least it feels that way whether it was you know, WWF or even, you know, WCW and ECW, they had a lot of shows there and some of the, the greats, uh, you know, in our, in, in the industry, whether it's Bruno San Martino or Kurt Angle, a guy I grew up on Shane Douglas, Larry Zabisco is more in your day, but even the guys on TV now, guys like Corey Graves and Elias, they're all from Pittsburgh, but for some reason, I feel like Pittsburgh sort of gets glossed over in wrestling history. Why don't you think Pittsburgh has a bigger reputation? You know, I think that when people were covering the Northeast and they were covering wrestling for the magazines, especially back in the day, New York and Madison Square Garden, that was the center. And that was the center of the world. And I arguably, I think a lot of people still consider New York the center of the world. So Pittsburgh was kind of also you had New York, you had Philadelphia, you had Boston and Pittsburgh was kind of on that fourth rung of the ladder, if you will. But it was a strong wrestling market. And as you just mentioned, man, some of the greatest of all time, you know, the great Bruno San Martino hails from Pittsburgh. Kurt Angle is a Pittsburgh native Olympic gold medalist. So it's produced some of the top talent ever in the wrestling business. And it was always a good draw for us all the time, really. It just feels weird to me that. You know, whenever people talk about big wrestling markets, it feels like even in that state, people talk about Philadelphia more so than Pittsburgh, but what a great history it has. So let's talk about the actual day of event here, because in my research, I found that you guys actually did a party right outside of the building just to create some buzz and some hype. You guys don't do that anymore, but back in the day here in this era, you were trying to, I guess, essentially have like hype parties right outside the building. What can you tell us about those? 
Well, the idea was to get people there, and we were having – I don't want to say that we were having problems, but we were – there became an issue with people coming in and being in their seats when we came on the air. So we would have parties. We would get people there early to get them involved, man. You would have meet and greets. You would have games and just a DJ having a good time outside, and you'd do talent, surprise stuff out there. But it was a way to get people to the venue early so that when it was time to fill up the arena, feed them in and get them seated. Well, let's talk about where business is here because you guys have really started to catch fire here. Of course, business has been up for a while, but starting in April, you started to actually win in the ratings war and here we are in June, but let's talk about just where we are financially. Your average attendance in June of 97 was 5,687. Here in June of 98, you're up 68.2% to 9,568 fans on average, huge jump there, but your gate is way up too. in June of 97, you were averaging around 93,000 at the gate here. You're up to 179,000. So a 92% jump and you weren't selling out very many house shows in June of 97, only like 5.9% here. 46.7% of your shows are sold out. Your average uh, television rating on cable is also up 58% from a 1.7 to a 2.7 business is up. No matter where you look, the metrics tell the same story. Business is up. You had been in the company for over 10 years at this point, except for that little hiatus. Is this the hottest? It was the entire time you were there up to that point. Yeah. I mean, up to this point, it definitely was. I maybe not so much as in 1987 when I first came in, but yeah, this was red fucking hot. Everywhere we went, it was on fire. Stone Cold Steve Austin was the hottest star in the business at the time, and everybody and everything was turned into gold. So it was a really good time. We were on top of the world, and, man, business was good, and it was also during a time that everybody was making money, so everybody was feeling good. You know, obviously, whenever something works like this, it really is a team effort. And when business is up, it's usually not just one thing. And I do find it funny because sometimes when business is down, people like dependent on one guy. But when it's up, you know, everybody wants to spread the credit around. A great example of this is whenever people say, oh, Diesel was the worst drawing champion in history. But like here, when business is really hot, a lot of people are debating. Is it Vince Russo? Is it the Mr. McMahon character? Is it the Austin character? Is it all of it together? And I'm curious what your takeaway on that is. If you had to sort of pinpoint one thing above all else, obviously it all contributed. Obviously it was all a factor, but was there one single thing that you could put your finger on and say, well, this is what got us there. Really? Man, Austin was red hot. Austin was, was that guy that was steering the ship and Austin was the one that people were paying money to come out and see. So if you were only going to pin it on, on one guy who was drawing the houses and what was everybody talking about that was new and that was different, it was stone cold, Steve Austin, but make no mistake about it. It was a team effort. It's a team, look, it's team effort. When you lose, it's team effort when you win. So when things are doing the shits, it's not just one thing going wrong or one guy with bad ideas. It's, it's bad ideas. It's bad talent. It's bad management every, you know, and then when it all works together, it's a perfect storm and does well. And that's what was happening here. Let's talk a little bit about some behind the scenes finagling. Let's go back to May and we'll sort of set the stage for our June pay-per-view here in mid-May WCW filed a lawsuit against you guys and the USA network. And this is essentially 
uh, a countersuit of sorts. I mean, it's almost identical to what you guys sued them for back in 96 here. WCW is asking for $2 million in damages because they're saying that you guys have infringed on their trademarks, much like you sued them for razor and diesel. Well, now they're saying, you know, you've done that when, when you invaded WCW. So we've talked about that invasion angle a little bit here and, and we'll table the rest of that talk for another time. But when you find out that after you guys had sort of invaded CNN center and of course the arena in Norfolk, Virginia, and now they're suing, what's your reaction? Well, you know, I think that <laughs> initially it's like, what the fuck? Um, when you're on top, you know, everybody's going to sue you and, and WCW was on top and we were suing them, but also they had, you know, they had breached agreements and they were using our trademarks. We were using, you know, old footage. We were using, you know, Hulk Hogan from the time that we had him and that we, we did own those images. We did own that because it was WWE property. So their lawsuit didn't have nearly as much, you know, as far as anything to stand on really. And they were just kind of countersuing because they were getting their ass kicked at the time and didn't know what else to do. I do feel like, um, it's a little bit like, well, they sued us. So we're suing them type of deal. I mean, more so than it actually being based in reality. Anyway, maybe that's me being a homer. Let's talk about off the record which is a TSN show that I got to tell you as a kid in Alabama, I heard about all the time because you guys clearly had a great relationship either with TSN or Landsberg or something caused you guys to book guys all the time on off the record. And you guys did tremendous ratings whenever Bret Hart or Vince McMahon were on there, but it blew it out of the water when Austin was on around this same time. It's the largest rating they ever had on that show up to that point. What can you tell us about the off the record Landsberg relationship with the WWE? Landsberg was their big talk show guy. You know, he was their Bill O'Reilly of sports and TSN was the Canadian network. Carl DeMarco, who was the president of WWE Canada, had a good relationship with them and always wanted to strengthen that. And Landsberg was nice to us. I mean, he would put our guys on, he was fair and it was great exposure for us. So whenever he had a WWE talent on his ratings went up and our exposure went up and in Canada, it was a, it was a good marriage, but he wasn't an asshole. Let's talk about, um, JYD. This is a bit of a sad news here that we have to cover, but I don't know when we'll talk about JYD again, because you didn't spend a lot of time with him in his WWF run. You came in towards the end. But he passes away in early June. He's killed in a car accident and he's only 45 years old. What can you tell us about your time with the junkyard dog? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. JYD was probably one of the most charismatic stars that ever been around, man. Dog, even in the dressing room, he just commanded the locker room. He commanded it just the way that he carried himself. He was a hell of a football player back in the day. But dog was one of those unique talents that drew money everywhere that he went and he could come in, he could come in in the opening match and he could be over more over than your main event, no matter where the hell you, you want to bring him in. Uh, I was around JYD a lot mid South. 
and JYD left to go to New York and go work for Vince. Bill Watts was beside himself when JYD left, had no idea what to do. And Bill was of the mindset that JYD was almost irreplaceable, but the only way to replace him was to replace him with another black baby face. And, and it became a, a quest to find that replacement for JYD. We went through Butch Reed, went through Brickhouse Brown, George Wells, Master G. I mean, the list is endless. The, the Sandman or the Snowman and, and everybody. Um, it was brutal. But JYD wasn't just a, a black superstar, man. He was just a superstar. And he was a megastar that Vince wanted bad. And he did pretty damn good for Vince in New York as well. But um, incredible, incredible talent that controlled the room, man. And he commanded respect wherever he went. Well, I hope we get to talk about him some more sometime. Because I feel like he's one of those names that people don't talk about enough now. Let's talk about the June 5th show in Madison square garden. You guys had an interesting main event here. Steve Austin is teaming with the undertaker to take on Kane and mankind. And they draw 19,506 fans of which 16,814 paid over $391,000 at the gate. This is the largest gate ever in the United States for a non-pay-per-view event for the WWF. And this is just a random show, man. What can you tell us about the incredible success you're enjoying, especially in the garden, which Vince has always held in high regard? Well, it was just, it was a time where, as I said, for me, I remember coming in in 1987 and all you had to do was put Hulk Hogan's name on a marquee and you would sell out everywhere that we went in, in 87 during that time, it was sellouts across the country. So to be back at that, at that place again. And no matter where the hell we were going, we were doing great business. And it's always nice when you go in your backyard and you see this kind of a gate and this kind of a response and the magic is back. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're, you're in a slump and then you're back. And that was the feeling to be able to do it in your hometown and your home home arena, which that's what MSG was for Vince. And it's gotta be a big deal to Vince because, you know, three years prior to this, he couldn't sniff a sellout. He couldn't give away tickets in the garden. And now, man, he's just on top setting records. There is an interesting thing that we see here on the June 8th raw. We saw George Martin from the New York giants and, and um, Darnell Autry from the Chicago bears on raw to present Mr. McMahon with the humanitarian of the year award. And Austin shows up with a black tie, jeans, no shirt or jacket. And Martin claims that he's representing minority athletes network and said, McMahon gave less money than he promised and his check bounced twice. And his favorite wrestler is Austin. How great is this? You know, it, it, it was nice because these guys got it and they like to have fun. They were big fans of the business and, and they got it. So they came out and they enjoyed fucking with Vince and being able to just, amplify that Mr. McMahon character, which was still brand new and which was really hadn't taken off even the way that we had anticipated later on. So, you know, now we're still sitting there going, is there something here? And we were having fun with it and it worked and it was just guys coming out and getting, getting the joke, if you will. Well, clearly there's something here. I mean, you guys have already had him wrestle Austin on raw, but the fun continues here. Austin's picking his pocket. Picking McMahon's pocket, that is, pronouns pal, of $1,200. Then he gives it to the charity 
and says McMahon is like the tightest SOB in the WWF. And then of course, Undertaker's music plays. And then the Druids bring a casket to the ring, but it winds up being Kane coming out of the casket and mankind coming from the other side of the ring. And then they put Austin in the casket and, and Kane stands on top and he's stuck there. And that's when they do the whole, you know, making the uh, fire shoot out of the, uh, what'd y'all call that? I mean, I know you call it a boom technically, but whenever Kane would like motion his hands down and the fire shoots up out of the ring post, was there a, a name in the industry for that? Well, there was, it's the concussion is the big boom and everything, but it was just, God damn, I don't think we called it anything. God damn it, when he moves his hands down, oh yeah, ba boom. Well, I'm God just damn, rattle my boots. I'm just guessing they don't call it a concussion today. Uh Raw that night did a four point three two. Nitro did a four point oh three. The following week, Raw did a four point three and Nitro did a four. On June twenty second, Raw did a four point three and Nitro does a four point one. At this point, you guys are racking up the wins here, back to back to back. Is there any sort of high-fiving when these ratings come in on Tuesday, or is it just business as usual? Business as usual. Move the fuck on, and let's continue to do it. Just keep doing what we're doing right. Let's talk a little bit about the June 15th Raw. Uh, I feel like this is worth mentioning. Shawn Michaels is here for the first time since WrestleMania, and he's here because they're doing the television in San Antonio. And Meltzer would write, the report from those who saw him was that he mentally appeared to be in better shape than in a long time, he had cut his hair and he was able to sit down and stand upright for periods of time without excruciating pain. Do you remember him showing up here? Because we really haven't seen him since WrestleMania 14 in Boston. Now, granted that was just a couple of months back, two and a half at this point, but still did a lot of people probably thought the way he left, we're not going to see him for a while. What'd you think? Okay. You ever see the, the paint, you remember the paint, the little Dutch boy? Yeah. Okay. And the haircut that the little Dutch boy had. Yep. Okay. Well, and I distinctly remember this television because it, it was the first time we had seen Sean in, in quite some time. And he had cut his hair. And Undertaker and I were in the backstage area when he came in. And it was like, it. I mean, right at the same time, looked at each other and went, oh, my God, it's a little Dutch boy. Because he looked just like that kid on the side of the paint with the haircut. But it was, um, it was a different Shawn Michaels than we'd had before. He was in great spirits. I remember the, I even remember the boots he was wearing because they were the boots kind of the with the sole that he works in now, and he wears them all the time and has them specially made. But it was he looked good, he looked clean, he looked healthy, and it was it was not the old rambunctious Sean. This was a new Sean with a smile on his face and saying hello to everybody in a pretty damn good mood. But the biggest thing was the haircut. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, deal that comes out in the June 8th observer. Meltzer reports here that USA signed raw for three more years. And we just heard a few days ago that all these years later, 20 years later, in fact, USA has signed them again for five years. Do you remember at this time? I mean, obviously ratings are up. Are you guys still dealing with Bonnie hammer here? What was the relationship like after a few years prior? Maybe the ratings weren't where everybody would have liked, but now you guys are riding high. So it feels like the perfect time to get another deal, which is very Vince McMahon. Like, 
Yeah, it was. And I think we were, Bonnie, we were definitely dealing with Bonnie at this point, but Bonnie didn't have the kind of power at this point that she would later get at the USA Network. And I think we were dealing with Jeff Zucker. I think that's his name, uh, who was handling everything for USA Network at the time. And it was, it was a coup. It was one of those, we wanted to stay on USA Network, but they were doing the same thing then. We were shopping it to other networks and seeing who was interested in USA as the home. And that's where we wanted to be. Let's talk about over the edge. Uh, this was in the observer, the WWF paper, listen, over the edge blew out the circuits because so many people ordered it all at the last minute. So everyone who ordered that show will now be given King of the ring for free. That's right. I said paper, listen. And there's this weird deal where for a little while you guys experimented with the idea of you can't watch the show, but you can hear it. It's almost like podcasting before podcasting was a thing. Do you even remember hearing about paper? Listen, I feel like I did a little paper visit paper. Listen as a kid on some of those adult channels. Yeah. I can't say that I have ever even heard of paper. Listen, this is the first time I've ever even heard that term. So that might've been something they experimented with, but I was not involved in any way, shape or form. Never even heard about it. Well, I'll tell you this. If nobody's heard about your business, you need to be advertising right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. All you've got to do is drop a line to our fine sales team. Hey, Hey, advertising at gmail.com and Goldberg is going to hook you up. No, not that Goldberg. He's not going to kick your head into the fifth row. What he is going to do is get your word out about your business, about your promotion, about your offering, about your product or service to hundreds of thousands of listeners. And if you're looking for men, we got men in spades. Do we not Bruce? Yes, we do. You want to reach men 18 to 54. Well, we've got them right here every single week. And did I hear something about Goldberg lowering prices? We're not going to talk about that. that. I'm tired of you doing this. You've been talking about doing stuff for free and we're not doing that. Okay. If you want to promote your business, email, Hey, Hey, advertising and gmail.com. And seriously, our man Goldberg, our Jewish salesman, he will hook you up. Uh, he's like five foot three. So he's not the real Goldberg. So you're safe and your business is safe promoting it here on something to wrestle. So drop him a line right now. Hey, Hey, advertising at gmail.com. And he'll hook you right up. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the company at this time, because we've got this storyline going with blood falling out of the ceiling and we're trying to make Kane like the top guy. And there is a bit of a mess here that I want to talk about that goes down on the June 22nd raw where Austin's doing a promo challenging Kane. Kane comes out and makes some motion, not like the concussion motion. And this red liquid comes from the cage. And it's supposed to look like it's raining blood on Austin. Chat me up about this liquid. And I assume this is the same thing that Gangrel was using. Whose idea was this shit? Bro, what if we gave a giant bloodbath to Stone Cold from the ceiling? Kind of like when Carrie got the bloodbath in the movie. I forget the name, but her name was Carrie. And that was, that was Vince's idea. He, he loved the shit coming down from the ceiling, whether it was shit, whether it was blood, no matter what the hell it was, he liked shit coming from the ceiling and falling on people's heads. It might've actually been shit because Austin gets hospitalized 
right after the Houston house show due to a staph infection in his right elbow. So you've probably seen this tape maybe very recently on the WWE network. And you saw that he had it taped up and you might've wondered what's up with that. Well, allegedly he got a fever up to like 104 degrees. He had to have IVs. I mean, he's hospitalized for a while here and people aren't exactly sure where it's supposed to have happened, but people do think that he had like a bad elbow bruise that happened in either San Antonio or Austin. And by Wednesday, he had a mild fever and things just progressively got worse. What can you tell us about this staph infection and how hit or miss this looked for him? Because he's your top guy. He's the main draw. He's hotter than a cap gun. And here he is. Fucked up. And the fucked up thing about it from our vantage point was, you know, a lot of times when you think of staff, it usually comes from an open wound that gets infected and gets worse from there. And Steve didn't have a cut. He didn't have an open wound. So they think that it was internal, but it was, it was a freak deal. Banged his friggin' elbow and it kept getting worse. And all of a sudden you see this red line coming up his arm, which is signifies staph infection. And they got him into the hospital. He wasn't feeling good. And Steve is one of those guys that unless he's, he's dying, he's not going to the friggin' hospital. He just won't go to the hospital unless it's absolutely a necessity. So when he reached 104 degree fever and was in enough pain that made him go to the hospital, he finally went and had to put him on the shelf for a few days while he got some IV, get some fluids in him and get some antibiotics in him to just get this thing under control. But it was a freak deal. And that's why they, they don't really know where it came from other than probably this deep bruise somehow. He missed some smaller house shows like Corpus Christi and Tyler, Texas, but he's scheduled to return in Houston and does work the main event because it's sold out of the compact center and he beat mankind, but he's in such pain that he has to go to the hospital. Like you're saying, which as if that wasn't enough around this same time, the undertaker suffers an ankle injury. And a lot of people believe he cracked it. And there's maybe some bone chips floating around after the June 16th tapings in Austin. So basically you guys need to stay the hell away from Texas. Uh, allegedly this locate that this injury happens on location in what was supposed to be Paul bear's house. And he of course tore that up on the raw that aired on June 22nd, but there's not really a noticeable spot where he was injured. And during the angle, Paul bear also suffers an ankle injury, which is probably when the undertaker's throwing furniture around, maybe something lands on his leg. What can you tell us about just the bad timing here? Because undertaker is also off of Corpus Christi and Tyler, but he tries to work Houston, but he's limited so badly. Um, that he and Kane just have a very short match ending with a double count out finish. And everybody has to be smartened up at that point that man, something's a miss, but now you've got two guys down seemingly at the exact same time. Well, not just two guys. You got two of your top guys and Oh yes. Paul trying to get the hell out of the way and got his ankle fucked up from undertaker throwing shit. And it was it was just one thing after another, and it just was compounding to where you're going, what the hell is next? And it just was a shitty, just shitty timing on everything. Taker's ankle was, was fucked up, but, but Taker's ankle was more of, of like a twist 
and nobody thought it was broken. Nobody thought it was really that bad. Just keep off of it, tape it up pretty good and felt he'd be okay, ready to go. Well, it's obvious when you watch this pay-per-view, when he drops down from the cage and then when he comes out later oh, yeah. in the main event with a chair, I mean, he's limping like a bitch. Uh, it's something to see. So let's talk about, you know, the backup plan. And I know that you're going to say, oh no, we knew they'd make it. But I mean, at least you guys have to float an idea. What if Austin's in the fucking hospital? Like what if Austin and or undertaker have to miss the show? Was there a plan B? <laughs> no, there wasn't because you're sitting there going, what is your plan B at that point? What the hell do you do? We really didn't have anything other than going with the king of the ring and making that your, your main match because your top two baby faces and the other two feature matches are, are fucked. Could have put Mick Foley against Kane perhaps, but at that point you're just trying to get the match in the ring and do anything you can to at least deliver a semblance of the attraction that you advertised. It comes out around this same time in the month of June that there were reports, especially in Japan, some in America, but a lot in Japan that the world wrestling federation was interested in buying the Minnesota Vikings. And I know we've talked about this a little bit on our XFL episode, which is available in the archives at something to wrestle.com. But what do you remember about this alleged meeting on June 12th, where it's floated through the company that McMahon is considering buying the Vikings. What if I bought the Vikings and we didn't know what the hell he was talking about really at first, but it was more than anything. It was a publicity stunt because they were floating out there that the Vikings were up for sale and Vince floated it out there that he was interested in it. And I dare say that had the price been right, he might, he might've even bought the damn thing for publicity purposes to make it, you know, to say, okay, the WWF just bought the Minnesota Vikings and Vince McMahon is now entering the football arena. So it worked, got people talking. I love that you suggested he might've bought it for publicity. It cost more than the WWF at the time. I mean, it was, it would have sold for hundreds of millions well, of dollars. I'm sure. Yeah, but he could have raised that money easily. He's Vince McMahon. Damn it. I'm not doubting him. It is kind of funny to think too, that what if he would have bought the Vikings and like six years later, his champion walks out and then tries out for his other business. God damn it, pal. That'd be ludicrous. All right. Let's talk about why we're here. King of the ring, 1998. It's a sellout crowd here. 17,087 fans on hand. Uh, 15,505 were paid and it set an all time city gate record of over 539,000 and they do like another 148 grand in merchandise. You guys are setting the woods on fire, man. Um, we've never really talked about this before. We know that some of the guys get pay-per-view bonuses. You work in the office at the time. Are you, are you getting any sort of bump when the business is doing so well? Well, I had a very unique deal in that Jim Ross and I, when it came time for to negotiate you know, people get in the office, they would get a yearly bump and they would go in and they would have their performance review and they would get their raises and what have you. And Jim and I went in and we essentially negotiate negotiated a decrease in pay, but a participation in the house shows and, and everything else. So we did participate and we, we took less money up front because we did have a hand in what was being presented out there in the house shows and television so that we wanted to be paid on, 
our contributions. And that's what we did. So I, I took less money, guaranteed money up front to participate in the back end. Let's talk a little bit about the actual show itself. Uh, we start off with an interesting match to say the least. What can you tell us about our opener here? Well, I'll talk in the headbangers against damn the, the Kayentai and Dick to go and Funaki. <laughs> what? I was just waiting on you. I mean, I really just threw that opening match to you just to hear you say that one more time. What Dick to go and men's Teo and Shoichi Funaki. The only one that's left was <laughs> left out of the whole damn match is Funaki left in the damn company. And he's had a hell of a run. Indeed. Thank you for that. This is an unannounced match. Uh, they say they put it together early in the afternoon here. Um, Meltzer would say solid, fast paced opener, some good moves, but it didn't have time to build. Uh, ultimately though, the finish sees Michinoku, which is Taka go ahead and get the pin on Funaki after the Michinoku driver. And it gets two and a quarter stars. It does feel a little bit like filler, but I don't know when we'll talk about these guys again. What can you tell us about men's tail and dick to go? Old dick to go. Uh, well, you know, actually when I watch this match and, and I start thinking about it, th this was our version of the WCW cruiserweight car wreck match. And that's exactly how Bischoff would explain it to him and tell those guys to go out and give me a car crash. Didn't give a shit about psychology. Didn't give a shit about selling or anything else. This was our version of that, where our guys actually sold and did tell a story in the match. But Kai and Ty, these were, uh, it was a hell of a group that we got from the Michinoku, uh, Sasuke's group in Japan. Those guys wanted to get away from Sasuke so bad. And we also had Wally Yamaguchi, who was their manager, who was a long time, higher up in gong magazine and Wally was a great guy, but it was, it was a spotlight thing. There was only so much that you could do with, with Terry boy and old Dick to go. And there's only so much you could really do with them, man. And, and without having a, a big flourishing light heavyweight division, this was it. And I'd say it was a damn good, solid match and good opener. Let's talk a little bit about, and this is fun. I'm excited about this. Sable comes to the ring. Meltzer would write Sable walks to the ring without tipping over. He just can't help himself. By the way, it's been a while. I'll admit since I've seen any Sable from this era, I know we just did a Sable episode last week, but I just read, I didn't watch any footage. Sable was roll tied here in June of 98. I see why she was getting all these reactions. Well, yeah, but then the, the wrestling observer, uh, editorial paper, um, I can't call it a newsletter anymore cause it's just an editorial bullshit paper, but good God, she looked beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it was, there you go. She was roll tied, man. She was hot as a firecracker. This, this outfit was painted on, and this is probably a, a scene you're familiar with. You've got Vince McMahon coming out with the stooges, the very early version, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. And as Sable turns to leave, Pat Patterson pats her on the ass and Jim Ross has a an interesting comment. And then she slaps Pat Patterson and they show the replay multiple times. And, um, it does feel a little bit like during McMahon's promo, he's trying to stretch for time. And I'm not saying this as someone who knows what's going on, but it does feel like if you know that Austin's hurt and you know that undertaker's hurt and you know, this other match wasn't even advertised. And now we've got a Vince McMahon promo in the middle of a pay-per-view. It feels like we're trying to just 
give the crowd something either entertaining or whatever, but we're trying to just feel for time here. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. And it was more of a lot along the lines of Vince was looking at the pay-per-views and saying, why are the pay-per-views just a wrestling show? Why aren't we giving people more on the pay-per-views like they get on Monday night raw when they tune into a pay-per-view, they want the same storylines continued from Monday night raw. And he felt that the pay-per-views should give more of the same shit that we give them on raw more backstage stuff, more in-ring promos. So that's what he was trying to do there. And yes, and also kill time. We also did it later on in the show with, with Paul bear, but some of the comments, I mean, I listening to, to Jim Ross and talk about, you know, my Oklahoma buddies would, would marry her dog just to be a part of that family right there. Talking about Sable when she came to the ring and just going back and listening to some of Lawler. I mean, uh, yeah, Lawler and JR's commentary on this show was, was priceless. It was good shit. Well, and I'll tell you this, uh, it was clear, you know, when this whole Sable segment was done that they were not done with her and McMahon and that was going to continue. And I couldn't help but wonder, do you think that at this point, Vince McMahon could have used any of that ageless male max. Well, I think sometimes Conrad, it's just when you start to get feeling lazier, softer and, and fatter, man, you need a little, you need a little testosterone to, to get yourself going. I mean, God damn it. We need to, to bring the men of this country back to greatness. And it's easier than ever with ageless male max. That's right. Ageless male max is a patent pending formula with an ingredient that helps you boost your total testosterone. It promotes a greater increase in muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. Plus an amazing 64% increase in nitric oxide, which can be handy in the gym or so I hear and in the bedroom. Now here is what you need to know. You can take your manhood to the max by trying your very first 30 day bottle. Wait a minute, Bruce. This says this is no free. Say it, Conrad. I want to hear it from your mouth. I want you to hear, tell everybody that, and by the way, they don't get 10 days, not 15 days. They get a full 30 day supply of ageless male max for how much free, free. That's right. Free. And all you have to do is text the word slam to 79 dash 79 dash 79. That's right. Text the word slam S L A M. Okay. Listen, I can get behind this because it's finally a formula that boosts total testosterone. And if your results with ageless male max are too intense, you should decrease use. That's a disclaimer we're required to read here folks, because this stuff's going to work. So for your bottle text slam to will you stop saying free, but it's free Conrad. They're not going to advertise here again. If you keep giving all the stuff away. Now you do have to pay your shipping and handling, and I'm glad you got to give them something. Cause I mean, this is crazy for your free bottle. I can't believe I had to say that text slam to 79 dash 79 dash 79 text slam to 79 dash 79 dash 79. And of course your message and data rates may apply, but you get a free 30 day full supply. I don't know how long they're going to let you do this. You do have to pay the shipping and handling though, but for 30 days worth. That's I'm a, doing it right now. Well, I don't know that you need any more. I've seen you shaking your ass on the WWE network for like a month now. You like that. So, uh, let's talk about, uh, the King of the ring semifinal because up next, man, you talk about a tale of two styles here. It's Ken Shamrock and Jeff Jarrett. 
And Meltzer would write the crowd wasn't into the match at all. And he says they didn't miss any moves. There's nothing wrong with it. They just didn't have enough time to build a match when they had no heat going in. Uh, he would write Shamrock nearly killed himself when he did a running hurricane Rana and in turning over appeared to hit his head on the mat and then clamped on the ankle lock for submission. One star. This is weird to look because you've got Jeff Jarrett and I don't know why, but he still feels a little out of place here to me. And he's got the big entrance with the fireworks and the whole deal. And he's got Tennessee Lee with him. And then you've got Ken Shamrock. who looks like ass kicker extraordinaire. What'd you think of the match when you watched this back? Good God. I thought that they had a pretty damn good match. I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, 18 star Fernum Snavitz reverse double explanation nation, um, hurricane Rana, but it was a damn good match. It was solid and it did what it meant to do. And that was get Ken Shamrock over like a damn monster. No, he was that for sure. I guess we should mention that on his way in, he beat comma and Mark Henry to get here. And Jeff had to beat Farouk and Mark Merrow. Um, Shamrock on this bad landing here on the Frankensteiner. It's probably been a while since you saw that. I mean, he had to have something going on after that. All right. Talk about getting your bell wrong. Yeah. I don't think that you, but th- that's the funny thing about Ken is you can never tell <laughs> if he got his bell rung or not, because he would never sell it. And he always kind of had that crazy look in his eye. Anyway, it looked absolutely brutal and you would have thought, but he came back. No, I'm fine. No, everything's good. What's next. Just kind of bobbing his head, ready to go eat somebody. In the other semifinal, we got Rocky Mavia pinning Dan Severn in four minutes and 25 seconds. Melser would write awful. Also no heat. He was not a fan. And he says Severn's inexperience at selling was killing the match. And he says, Maya V's knee was giving him a lot of trouble and made his stomps look weak. In the end, he gave it a negative half star. Maya of course, gets the win here. What'd you think? I mean, Meltzer takes uh-huh. a hard stand here and he says, this may have been the first pinfall loss Severn has ever taken as a pro wrestler. While there was no other way out of this, the finish does kill Severn as an international pro wrestling attraction because all he had to offer was that nobody had ever beaten him. But of course he had to lose here. What'd you think? I thought it was the drizzling shits. It, it was, it was absolutely fucking terrible. It was clash of styles, clash of personalities. And as much as I like Dan Severn personally, it just, the, the WWE wasn't the place to highlight Dan Severn's talents, Dan legit, badass, great in the UFC and all that. But I just, Dan couldn't make that crossover into the mainstream. Uh, there was a spot there where he grabbed rock's knee and falls on rock's knee. And you, you even see rock camera was right in his face where he, he no sold it, but he sold it with a God damn it. And you could tell he was pissed and, and just and hurting and there's not much, you know, there's not much you can do with Dan Severn if he doesn't want to do it. So that you add that to the, to the issue and the match absolutely sucked. I should have to improve just to suck. Let me ask you, was there ever any consideration to doing a, a shamrock severed main event at King of the ring? You know, those guys had been one and one in the UFC. It feels like somebody somewhere would have said, Hey, what if? And obviously the inexperience on both sides would have probably talked you out of that, but yet you still wound up doing it with, uh, Shamrock and Mavia. T- tell me about this. 
Well, absolutely. We thought, what if, when we had Severn and Shamrock together, however, neither one of them wanted to do it. And they, the reason they didn't want to do it is they felt that there was still money on the table in the MMA world to have that match again. So they didn't want to have a worked match. There was, what the hell do you do with it? Who do you put over? I mean, what, what, what do you do with it? There, there's nothing to do. Um, I don't think that they liked each other personally. They got along professionally, but okay, great. They're, they're one and one in a real world. Now you get to a worked world. Who do you put over? And then to get the other guy to, to actually want to do it when they both, when they both felt there was money on the table in the MMA world, that's why it never happened. On the way here, rock uh, had to beat Vader and triple H, which pretty interesting. Uh, Severin got here by beating D'Lo and Owen Hart. What do you think of, uh, Dave's comment in the observer here that this essentially kills off Severin's attraction because he's finally lost. And obviously in wrestling, everybody has to lose eventually, but what do you take? What do you, what do you think of Meltzer's assertion here? Well, what the hell do you, again, I asked the same question. What the hell do you do with him? Uh, does he never lose? Is that his attraction? Okay. Dan Severin's attraction is he's undefeated and he's never, ever defeated. Otherwise he loses his <laughs> being a pro wrestling attraction, man. That's a tough gimmick to have unless you're a, a Kurt angle or somebody and even Kurt angle could lose. So in pro wrestling, everybody's got to lose eventually. And this was Dan's time. It was the right thing to do. And I don't know that Dan was that big of a pro wrestling attraction internationally or domestically that it was really going to hurt him with the places that he would have been an attraction, I guess is what I'm saying. Around this time, Dan did an interview on the internet. And when he asked about the rivalry with Shamrock, he says, quote, let's just say he didn't get his body by just working out. But then again, most of the bigger guys in wrestling did not which I feel like is probably going to get him some heat with the company. I mean, when you guys hear that he says something like that, you're not that far removed from the steroid issue. I mean, you're less than five years out. Is there any recourse on a Severin or was he never really an office favorite anyway? No, it was, it was a, what the fuck are you doing? What, what are you talking about here? And you've got to, you've got to be media savvy. You, you can, if you don't like the guy, okay, then learn how to work and learn how to put somebody over with a backhanded compliment, but don't do that. And that was taken as Shamrock was pissed off about it. Uh, JR was not happy about it. Wasn't a smart thing to say. And especially in, in the context of everything, it just wasn't, wasn't a smart and or nice thing to say and or do. Next up, we've got. A fairly interesting match here. Only in the WWF would this happen. Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor are going to take on Al Snow and Head. Yeah, that's uh, right. You said that right. Yeah. Mannequin Head. Christopher Taylor. That's right. That's my name for him. Christopher Taylor beat Snowhead. And the stipulation is Snow has to leave the WWF. Meltzer would write naturally after Sable lost the loser leaves and came back without even so much as an attempt at a logical explanation. 
And after Vader lost his mask only to still be wearing it the next day, any WWF stipulation doesn't mean a thing. And I doubt one fan actually cares if snow isn't leaving. what do you think of this match and the stipulation that if he, if he loses, he's gone forever. Fucking hate it. It's fine if he's gone forever, but I hated this time of nobody cares about the stipulations. Well, nobody cares about the stipulations. Then don't make the fucking stipulation. If it means nothing, then why do you make it? Oh, well, it means something for the attraction. No, it doesn't. If it does, if you don't fucking carry it out, it means nothing. And it kills all the other stipulations on down the line. So I hated it. Jerry Lawler was the special guest referee here, and he's really playing the, the heel referee and eventually snow low blows Taylor and throws the head down and covers Taylor and Lawler won't count. So then Brian Christopher gets a bottle of head and shoulder shampoo and put head on the bottle and then covered both with Lawler counting three, since the shampoo bottle represented the head's shoulders. Yeah. Head and shoulders. Uh, Meltzer would write sometimes the comedy works and sometimes it doesn't. And this time it didn't even come close. Even Jim Ross basically admitted it was a travesty on television, which may also be a first negative two stars head and shoulders. Bro, they're gonna love it. Because they're gonna pop when they say, How can you pin the head? The head got no shoulders. So we put the shoulders on the head. The head and the shoulders. They're gonna love it. Now let's run through this. I, you know, there are other podcasts that have a meltdown in twenty eighteen when someone wrestles a blow up doll. And I agree. Maybe that's not very old school, but good Lord. 20 years ago, we've got mannequin heads and shampoo bottles, bro. Yeah. Fucking horrible. Embarrassing. It it was embarrassing. It, It really and truly was. And for those old school guys, me, Jerry Briscoe, um, it just, you sit there and scratch your head and go, what the fuck? Because it's those are the things that people would point at and make fun of. And rightfully so. How do you defend that? Well, and what's weird too is, as crazy as it sounds, Al, Al Snow got this head gimmick over in ECW. I mean, he even main evented an ECW pay per view, Wrestle Palooza, back in May for the ECW world title against Shane Douglas. And now that he got it over, you guys call him back up here, or so it seems. He starts showing up on raw and he's coming over to the commentator's table, asking Lawler to get him a meeting with Vince. And that eventually leads to this match. And then here he is with this silly shit. This is probably not what he envisioned when he came up after being over with the head and ECW presented differently. Is that fair to say? I thought that the stuff that they were doing with Al leading up to this was some pretty damn entertaining shit with Al getting in the costumes and trying to sneak in the building and having the conversations with head and being crazy and what have you. To me, this just took all of, all of that and flushed it down the toilet. Um, cause then that meant nothing. And it, it was just fucking terrible. Terrible is, is the kindest thing that I can say about it. It was, 
It was just not good. And when you watch this match, it is a perfect example of seeing all of the air just sucked out of an arena and killing a crowd is Jim Cornette would say, get her Kelsey's nuts, motherfucker. They were flatter than a plate full of piss. Terrible. <sighs> All right. Let's talk about something that wasn't terrible. X-Pac is wrestling Owen Hart. Finally a good match here. They go eight minutes and 30 seconds. Meltzer would say the match had no heat, but the wrestling was good. X-Pac worked as the face, but the crowd didn't take to him at all, uh, nor to Hart. So they were just indifferent, even though both guys worked hard. The only pop, and it was small, was X-Pac doing the Bronco ride spot. What do you think of this match? X-Pac gets the win here, and um, there is a moment when there's all sorts of interference here with China and Mark Henry that Owen puts X-Pac in the sharpshooter. The ref's not paying attention. X-Pac's tapping out. And then Vader comes out, does his body block on Henry, which causes <laughs> Vader to take a tumble himself. And while all this is going on, China gets in the ring, gives Owen a DDT. The ref turns around and counts X-Pac for the pin. So even though you've got two world-class performers here and X-Pac and Owen Hart, they got to have all this shit going on. You got China, you got Vader, you got Mark Henry. Two and a quarter stars. Why didn't this match get over with the crowd? Is it just the way these characters had been presented? But and well, and, and why was it necessary to have all the the extra shenanigans here? Well, I disagree that it didn't get over with the crowd because I thought that the crowd was going to be happy to see anything after the debacle they had just seen with uh, Head and Too Cool. So the match itself was solid, man. It, it was a good snug match. They told a Good little story, but watching it, I can see, I think, you know how X-Pac has torn his butthole a few times? Well, okay. That's quite the transition. Well, I was going to say that when you watch this match and he takes the bump off the top rope and straddles that top rope, that may have been the first tearing because that looked like it would have torn a butthole. If you ask me, just going back and watching that match 20 years later. So that might've started the tear. I got to say, Bruce, I don't know where to transition from Xbox butthole tear here. So let's try to move along here. I, I do feel like we should mention, um, that during the 94 King of the ring, four years prior to this, Owen defeated the then one, two, three kid on his way to winning the tournament. And this is sort of fun because we get a rematch four years later that really, if you're not paying attention, you want to slip on. But these guys had a cool little feud again here, even building this up on raw, there was a, a match where Owens wrestling and X-Pac comes down and hits Owen in the back of the head, very hard with a chair. And it looks like he busts his head open on the backside and, and their brief feud ends after this. Was there some heat over the chair shot? What can you tell us about the chair shot that busted Owens head open? Well, Owen was pissed off, but you know, it's accidents, man. It's wrestling and shit's going to happen. So. You just chalk it up and you know that a receipt's coming. It was so bad that they actually replayed it, which is funny sometimes when a real bad accident happens like that. You replay it and say, okay, he got seven staples, or whatever Owen got in the back of his head. You look at those chair shots that get seven staples, it probably hurt like hell. And then you look at some of the other just devastating chair shots and they don't match up because it's like people are going, well, that one didn't look that bad. 
because from the angle it was, it's like, wasn't that bad. But yeah, he caught him on the corner of the chair and Owen was, was a little pissed off. But man, they worked through it and it was good for business, as the old timers would say. That's good for business, kid. Why was the feud dropped here? I mean, Owen's in the nation. You know, you guys are doing the, uh, the spoofs, but it doesn't feel like they continue this momentum very much here. And Xbox pretty hot. I mean, this is his first pay-per-view back uh, after coming back to the company the night after WrestleMania 14. He didn't wrestle too often before this. I assume he was still hurt, and this was one of his first matches back. Right, and there wasn't, and frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of thought to continuing a lot of the issues and storylines. It was a week by week the way that they were writing TV and just going on that they're, okay, we'll have this match, and then we'll move on from it. And we'll have this match next week and we'll start a new story here. So there wasn't that thought into where are you going to go in three weeks? Where are you going to go in six weeks? And what story is this going to tell? It was just, let's have matches and let's tell a quick story. And that's the end. Move on. Well, it's not the end because next up, we've got the new age outlaws taking on the midnight express. These guys are going to go almost 10 minutes here. And, uh, Meltzer says midnights were still acknowledged as NWA tag team champions, even though the NWA gimmick is gone and they are basically the lowest level jobber team on the roster. He gives it a star and a half. Uh, of course, you know, what's coming. Jim Cornette hits Billy with one of the NWA tag belts. Of course, Billy kicks out and Cornette does a run in to the second spot. And this time Billy gets up and China as Cornette stalls comes from behind and gives Cornette a low blow. So then both of the outlaws give Bob Holly a double hot shot and Billy pins him star and a half. What'd you think of the match here and how fucking awful is the midnight express in 1998? It was fucking awful. No chemistry whatsoever. And the crazy thing about that is Billy and Bart were tag team partners for a long time. They had chemistry as a tag team against each other, drizzling shit. The guys just sometimes, man, they just can't, you just can't go. And this was one of those examples of four great workers that couldn't get it together, man. And it was like fucking watching oil and water. It was painful to watch because you know that all four of them are better. And they kept talking about how, you know, bodacious Bart and bombastic Bob, former tag team champions and this, that, and the other thing and road dog and Billy, it just sucked. It just sucked. And even here's how you start off the match. You start off the match with Jim Ross talking about NWA, uh, tag team champion, but they're wrestling for the important championship tonight, the WWF tag team champions. So now all of a sudden you've already discounted your tag team and in the new midnight express, they don't mean shit. And it was fucking horrible. No chemistry whatsoever in the drizzling shits. And, and I couldn't help, but just sit there and, you know, as you watch this match and staring at Bob Holly and, and his hair where he had the, almost the, the kind of skullet like Michael Hayes has now with, with little, you know, starting to recede up top. And if only they had for hymns.com back then, Bob Holly could have taken advantage of for hymns.com and been able to use their treatments to treat his thinning hair then. And he wouldn't be in the position he is now, which basically shaves his head because just not anything up there. 
Well, here's the deal too. What's great about hymns is they put you with real doctors. And so now you've got a real doctor giving you a real solution and you're not going to have to break the bank to do it. And I want you to know that this is basically the well-known generic equivalent of those name brand prescriptions that you've heard about that cost you an arm and a leg. You see as proof for hymns.com has even shared real before and after photos by actual clients. And you can check it out on their Instagram and you really should. They're awesome. And for more information, you can go to forhims.com and you can see that they've got FDA approved prescription solutions that are backed by science. It's not some hocus pocus, but the thing I know Bob would like the most, there's no waiting room, no awkward doctor's no. visits. Just answer a couple of quick questions, upload some photos and a doctor will prescribe you the prescription meds that you need. And then I hear they ship it discreetly to your door. Uh, so if you don't want anybody to know that you're bald, they don't have to. Well, yeah, and for our listeners this month, for just $5, you Please can get an in, Yes, for, for only $5, you can get a trial month of hymns today, right now, while the supply lasts. All you got to do is go to forhymns.com slash WWE, and you get all the details, but you get a trial month. Bruce. Of hymns, just $5 today, no, right Bruce. now. Do it. No, that would normally cost hundreds of dollars at the pharmacy. If you're giving this stuff away for $5, they're going to be pissed. Go to forhymns.com slash WWE. You only pay $5 today and you get a full trial month. So check it out. F O R H I M S dot com slash WWE. Forhymns.com slash WWE. Another guy who might could have used this is the Macho Man. What would he have to say about forhims.com? Oh yeah, freak out, freak out because forhims.com right now I would go with the free, well, not a free trial, but one month trial for only $5 forhims.com. No doctor, no prescription. It's easy, uh-huh. Forward slash WWE. Let's talk about Ken Shamrock beating Rocky Maivia 14 minutes and nine seconds. Shamrock becomes your King of the Ring tournament winner. And of course, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is there doing ringside commentary. What'd you think of his commentary? What'd you think of the match? And this is really a trilogy because these guys had three matches in 98 on pay-per-view, the Rumble, WrestleMania, and now this one. Of the three matches, which one did you prefer? God. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't pick one, but these guys rock and shamrock. They enjoyed working with each other and is little chemistry as a tag match had before you had chemistry with rock and shamrock. But for me, you know, you asked about Hunter's commentary. I thought it was drizzling shits. I hated Hunter on commentary because it was all that smart ass shit. And it sounded like a 16 year old teenager with all of his one liners and cute little things that they had to get in and it took away from the match and it just, it just took away from it. And they're trying to do stuff with rock and Hunter and, all, and I get all that shit, but there's a way to get your talent over and get the guys in the ring over, get yourself over without burying people with the smart ass shit all the time. And to me, it was just way too much. I can't believe you said something negative. I always say negative shit. Wow, I'm proud of you. See if I can get you to do that on the network sometime. Ask me the question on the network. Oh my God. It's up to me to do everything. I forget. Goddamn right. So the match gets three and a quarter stars. 
I dug the match. There was something about Shamrock and Rock that just clicked for me. How did these guys enjoy working with each other? They loved working with each other, and that's why it showed. That's why you enjoyed it. And you enjoyed it because you get lost in it, and it felt real. And when they got out there, everything that Shamrock did, and the one thing I always loved about guys like Ken Shamrock and Kurt Angle was, yes, they had their finish, the same thing they went to, but they always went into it in a unique and different way. So you always saw something new from him, and that's that's what you got here. And it was a great coming out party for Ken Shamrock to try and do something with him and get him over. I do want to point out here that, um, Shamrock becomes King of the ring and it looks like he's going to be poised for big things because in this era, that was certainly, you know, what was next. I mean, you saw Hunter level up, you saw Austin level up, you saw Owen and Brett. I mean, everybody who's won King of the ring goes on to do big things for the most part. And he eventually wins the intercontinental title, but then he joins the corporation and it feels like he never really gets to a regular main event spot in hindsight. And I've asked you this before, but we've watched more stuff recently. Have you changed your opinion on Shamrock? Do you think that Shamrock was a missed opportunity to be in the main events? I think that what happened with Ken Shamrock is timing that if he had been in any other time with not so many top guys. Yeah, you know, look at look at the level of top talent we had. There's only so many people that can be in that top spot. And had Kenny come in a little bit prior to or a little bit after, it might have been different. But in that time frame that Ken came in, that was as far as he was going to rise. So let's talk about while we're here. It feels like we have uh, been building to this moment as we're over an hour into the show. The match that changed everything. The Undertaker gets a win over Mankind. It officially goes about 16 minutes in this Hell in a Cell match. I don't know. I mean, there's no way for us to really just talk about the match without talking about everything that led up to it and the memories of the match. And I feel like now's one of those times where I'm just going to let you, I'm going to lay out and I'm going to let you talk about this from everything that was happening sort of behind the scenes that week. And then I'll chime in because this is one of those stories that People have been asking about for a long time. I mean, Mick Foley has made this part of his tour all year, the 20 years of hell tour. He's been doing comedy clubs across the nation. And I think he's even going to take it to Australia later. And it's all about this match. Really. It's maybe the most famous match in company history, certainly in this era. I mean, you might could say Andre Hogan was bigger, but that was a little before my time here. This is as big as it was. I mean, people are still making references to it in a way they don't talk about any other match. So let's start from the beginning. When did you first hear that they were going to do hell in a cell and sort of take us through all of this? Well, leading up to, there was a lot of talk about doing at the time it was mankind and stone cold for the championship. And this would have been, had we gone with that match, it would have been, I believe the third time that Steve and Mick Foley would have worked. And I just don't think that in a row on pay-per-view. Yeah. And, and there wasn't a I don't want to say there wasn't any confidence in it, but Vince McMahon didn't feel that that attraction for a third time was, was what we needed. And, and he wanted to do something different. He wanted to shake it up and he wanted to do unpredictable. 
in something nobody would ever call, which is what what they did with Kane. So leading up to that, then you get get to the point of, okay, then what the hell do you do with Mick? We've been building Mick with Steve, and then now Undertaker really doesn't have a dancing partner. So I think it was Vince McMahon who was like, why not do, you know, Mankind and Taker one more time, put him in the cage and put him in the confines of this monstrous cage and, and have that epic fucking match. Well, it's also mentioned, you know, Foley wrote about this, of course, in his book that Russo breaks the news to him, quote, cactus. We're just concerned. The audience won't buy another match with you and Steve. And originally this was supposed to be the blue off with mankind, Austin in the cage. So mankind sort of assumes, okay, well I'm out of the cell and he gets good news from Russo. Oh no, you're still in the cell. They're just going to do it with the undertaker. But in mankind's mind, Mick Foley's mind at the time, he's got to be not overjoyed with that either, because he went from working with the, the tippy top guy who's got a staph infection to now the not as hot guy, but still a major guy, but a guy you've had six pay-per-view matches with. And oh, by the way, he can't walk. He's got a jacked up ankle. Right. And I think that Mick kind of felt, what the hell do I do now? And both guys, you know, Taker felt the same way. Taker kind of felt like, what else do we have to do that we haven't already done? And you put him in the cell and now that raises expectations as, you know, there had been this Shawn Michaels and Undertaker great cell match that everybody is raving about. How do you top that? And that was Mick Foley's mindset is how in the fuck do I top what Undertaker did with Shawn Michaels? So is, is legend has it, uh, I believe. And I'd always thought it was a lot of Mick Foley, but it was Mick Foley and Terry Funk going back and just talking about what the hell can we do? What can I do to make this match different? How do we take this to the next level? And the funny thing was, <laughs> was Mick after watching the match was kind of like, there's nothing we can do. What the fuck? How, how do you top this match? And as legend has, it was Terry Funk that said to him, start the match on top of the cage. Which, which, thought, which you would think when you hear that, where the fuck do we go from there? You know, if we're starting yeah. on top, where do we go from there? Now, if you haven't watched the first hell on the cell, you really should go watch that because Undertaker Shawn Michaels really set a new precedent. I know you hate it, but Meltzer gave it five stars, and that match is tremendous. We've covered it in our archive, something to wrestle.com. And even Mankind would write in his book that when he watched this match with Terry, that Terry said, Cactus, that's going to be difficult to beat. And so he suggests starting at the top, and I think everybody naturally thinks, well, where do you go from there? God damn kid. Just get on the top of the fucking cage. Start it up there. Make that big bastard chase you. Well, not, not only where the hell do you go from there? Uh, my first question when I'm hearing is how the fuck do you even get there at the beginning? You, you got to get there at some point. Um, and when I heard, heard what they had laid out, it's kind of like, Okay. Then what? You, you throw him off the cage. He takes this great bump. That should be the end. 
That's the finish. Where the fuck do you go from there? And when Mick says, we're going to climb back up and go back up to the top. But you just got thrown off through a fucking table. Then what? We're going to go through the cage. Wait a minute. You're starting on top of the cage. You're getting thrown off. Then you're going to climb back on top of the cage. You can completely kill the bump that you just fucking took. Yep. And then you're going to go through the fucking cage. Yep. To the ring. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't fucking get it. But as they laid it out and, and you start, you start talking about it. You, the way when you tell somebody, like I just told you, it's like, okay, start on top. Bam, we're going to have a fight on top of the cage. I've got a fucking chair. King Cancun, boom, big bump off the fucking top. Boom, go carry him out. You come down off the cage. They think I'm done. I come back, jump up on the fucking top of the cage. We go again. This time, you choke slam me through the fucking cage. It doesn't make sense. However, when you watch how they did it and the time, when Mick Foley took the initial bump, the first bump off the top of the fucking cell, he didn't move. He just laid there like a sack of shit and did not fucking move. Jim Ross's call on that was, oh, my God, he's broken in half. Good God, he's broken in half. You believed it. And the way they shot it and got off of it, shot it and got off of it, because it gave you the impression that, oh, my God, he's not moving. He could very well be dead. And that was a scary thing. And Mick took it so damn well that no one really knew other than Terry when he got down there and made sure he was okay. But Mick separated his fucking shoulder on the bump. And he thought that was, oh, well, that's okay. I just, I just separated my shoulder. Then they go through and, and everybody talks about all that, the, you know, the bump, everybody thinks that bump, uh, from the top of the cage through the table, what a horrific bump is the bump, the scary bump, the bad bump was the bump. He took off the top of the cage onto that fucking concrete ring that we used to have. And that wasn't supposed to happen that way either. The initial, the original idea behind the bump in the ring was when they got back up to the top of the cage that they fought on top of the cage until Taker picks Mick up and goes to, to slam him through the cage. And when he choke slams him, a little bit of the cage gives and you see it give. And Taker looks down and Mick's there and he picks Mick back up, takes him back up again and choke slams him a second time. And more of the cage gives. And the people are watching and they're seeing the, the cage start to sink from the top and, and Foley's body weight is starting to come down and shit. And Taker reaches over and fucking on that third time, hopefully. And now he crashes through. But it wouldn't have been the bump from the top of the cage. It would have been probably about the equivalent of maybe right about the top rope of the cage by the time for the third time. And, and the thought was that cage would have broken his fall. Well, everybody saw what happened. First time, 
the cage was gimmicked and it didn't break away like they thought it would. It just went. And add on top of that, there's the chair being up on the cage panel that Mick took the bump through and just followed Mick right down and smashed right into his face, knocked his teeth out. Um, it was brutal. And anybody that's taken a bump in those old WWF rings, they were the stiffest things. It, it was, I'd rather take a bump on the concrete than those old rings. So it was a little snug. Man. And Taker standing up there thinking, oh shit. He ain't moving again. So here comes Terry Funk. Here comes the doctors. Here comes the referee. And everybody's trying to talk to Mick. And Mick is out of it. Completely out of it. But he's going on just pure adrenaline at this point, telling everybody, um, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. And once Taker up on top kind of gets a sign that it's like, okay, he's okay. And Taker jumps down and you see him. He's favoring that ankle pretty good when he jumps down from the top of the cage. But to give Mick even more time to get his bearings, Terry Funk fed in and got choke slam right out of his shoes. Which, again, thank God for Terry Funk being down there. But a lot of that shit, like Vince coming down to check on Mick, that wasn't that wasn't part of it. Vince was genuinely concerned. Like, is he okay? I have to know. And wanted to be there. It was some scary shit because we didn't, you know, we really didn't know. Is he, he's moving. And I'm talking to people and saying, is, is Mick okay? And they're going, yeah, he says he's fine. You can't be fine after that. I don't give a fuck who you are or what you are. But, uh, Man, they continued on with the match and went another another little while, including thumbtacks, which the line of the night for me after the match was Mick Foley coming up to me and apologizing to me for forgetting the thumbtack spot. Oh. Said, I'm so sorry, Bruce. I, I totally forgot the thumbtacks. I'm so sorry. But but other than that, was it okay? Now, he's got thumbtacks stuck all over him. I said, Mick, you got the thumbtacks in. He says, I did? I'm like, you got the thumbtacks in, man. He goes, oh, okay, good, good. Now, the fucked up and the fucked up part, you know, for, for me throughout this whole thing, when all this shit's happening and the, the choke slam through the cage, I knew. I knew the two big bumps and I knew the finish, but I didn't know what they were going to do immediately after the, the bump into the ring. And I'm screaming in the backstage for Pat Patterson. I'm going fucking nuts. And I'm, I'm angry at this point because Pat's the agent for the match and he's not there at gorilla to talk me through the thing. And Jerry Briscoe comes up to me and, and sits me down and says, what do you want? I said, I've got to know what the hell, what, what we're doing here. What, what was planned here? What can we cut out? What can we do? What's going on? Where the fuck is Pat? And Jerry just looks at me and says, he got a call about Louie. And Louie was Pat's partner for many, many, many years, 35 plus years. And shut me down. I looked at him and said, oh, my God. I says, Louie, okay? 
And Jerry just looks at him and says, he's dead. Oh, man. And here's Jerry. Here I am, Pat Patterson, best friend in the business. Jerry Briscoe, another best friend in the business. And the two of us, we've got a job to do in front of us. I'm screaming like an asshole and a lunatic for Pat, not knowing what had happened. I think Jerry knew. I, I don't even know if Vince knew at that point. And uh, just that, you know, that calm comes over you. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a surreal feeling because all, all this other shit that you think is so important becomes really unimportant and your priorities go just, it was just, it was fucked up. So like in all of that, Pat's getting, getting a phone call that, that Louie has passed. I'm yelling for Pat. Where the fuck are you to tell to talk me through this wrestling match? And Briscoe, gives me the news is as cool and as calmly as somebody can do that. And just looked at me and was like, let's just get through this because to everybody else that didn't matter. And we just got through it. And then you're looking at, you're looking at guys in the ring that are putting their bodies on the line and risking their life. Literally taking bumps and doing this crazy shit that you wonder, wow, is, is it all worth all that? And I wonder sometimes, man, it just, yeah. I said, I said to Mick then I've said to Mick today, you know, a big, I just hated the punishment he put his body through. I really and truly did. His, his body, his head, everything. And um, it was just a crazy night, man. It was a fucked up night. I don't know where to go from here, man. You, uh, you just dropped a lot on us. That's a lot to process here. You know, it, it was... It put shit in perspective, I guess. Because... I said, it's for, for the moment you're, you're worried about, you're worried about a wrestling show. And in the, in the, in the midst of this wrestling show, you see a couple of your friends out there putting, risking their, their life and doing this incredible stunt work, I guess you could call it, but stunt men wouldn't be as crazy to do some of the things that Mick Foley did in the middle of that real life is happening backstage. And you just gotta, you gotta put your smile on and move on and, and keep going and not let anybody know. Um, I, there's another, you know, another night, you know, the, the rock, uh, cause rock and Pat were very close and, and, and thank God he was there to, to, you know, be with Pat and shit. And, and I think Linda McMahon was there, but it was, uh, yeah, man, it was just, it was a lot of shit. You know, that's the untold, that's the untold portion of 
the hell in a cell in Pittsburgh that night of everything else going on and, and Pat losing, losing Louie, uh, well, it was just a, a crazy, crazy night. And then, you know, they, 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 they went on and I remember Vince just sitting there thinking, you know, God damn, tell them to go home. You know, wh- what, what else are they going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know Mick had a, had a thumbtack spot in here, but I think they're going to skip that. And then he goes and gets the fucking thumbtacks. So it was, um, it was a night to remember. It's a night I will never, ever, ever forget just on so many, so many levels. Um, craziness, craziness, man. How'd you know about the thumbtack spot? I knew that the thumbtacks were under there. Mick, Mick had told me about that spot beforehand. I mean, this is the first they, time they've been used in the WWE, right? Yes. And they were, they were sterile and, um, how does Richie Posner? How does that huh? work? I mean, does he get it approved through somebody? Does he tell you on Monday, Hey, I need a bag of thumbtacks. And then you guys are thinking of safety and you have somebody sterilize them or what's the process? Yeah. Richie Posner got, got a bunch of thumbtacks and got them sterilized just to make it as safe as safe as taking a bump on thumbtacks can be. Um, and got a huge bag of them and we, Mick decided how many he wanted to use and put them underneath the ring. So we, we knew that pro- probably a few days beforehand. Is there any hesitation? I mean, this is a, it's a major moment in the company to use a weapon like this. You guys have never used anything like thumbtacks before. And you would probably have argued if you heard that, you know, guys were doing it, you know, in combat zone wrestling or something like that. Oh, that's silly horseshit. But yeah, here. It's okay. Why the change? Well, I think that it was pitched to Vince. Vince, come on. You're putting us out there to do this hell in a cell match. We've worked six times. We've got to do something different. I promise it won't be too much. And Mick could be pretty convincing in his arguments and selling shit to Vince. And he was able to sell it. I didn't like it. Uh, I don't, I don't know that Vince McMahon really liked it, but he approved it and he let him do it. Did he approve it because he had taken the Austin match away from him and he felt like he needed to give him something. I think that he felt for the match and for everything that he was feeling their pain of, Hey, yeah, this is the seventh time we're working with each other in a big match. It's gotta be different. We need to, we need to have something different as if the, the two big bumps weren't enough. When did Vince McMahon know about throwing motherfuckers off cages? Um, probably early in that week, but again, you know, the, the, the one bump going off, off the cage onto the announce table, I guess was as safe as you can make something like that. And the second bump was meant to be something else. And that was, that was something that just, just went wrong. It was supposed to be work at it, work at it, work at it. And then it finally gives. And he like is hanging on as it falls, not just breaking right. through. Right. Cause nobody would have wanted, I mean, <laughs> no one in their right mind would ever take that bump, uh, from the top of the cage like that. Well, it is something that people still talk about because a lot of people debated, well, you can see the zip ties clearly it was supposed to break, but you're saying 
not like that. It was supposed to break, but in time, not on the very first contact with it. Correct. It was supposed to gradually give until like about the third choke slam to where he would finally go through, but the cage would be breaking his fall along the way. You know, what's weird is when I watched this match back this week, it's the first time I've watched it in a long time. And I guess I'm just getting older now and it sort of clicked in my brain. Like what if he missed that table? It's not like earlier in the day. You know, I know sometimes before a big pay-per-view, if somebody's like, oh, I want you to do like a reverse power bomb or something, they, they do a walkthrough. There's no walking through, throwing yourself off the fucking cage. Like they're, you're just doing it. And it's not, I mean, I know that he had had a lot of experience jumping off the ring apron to the concrete floor. I get it. But the distance you're going, the height you're up, you know, and it, it, it's not like you got a spot on the concrete. You're really trying to hit. If you get a little bit of a guy, or you get all of a guy. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is different. This is much higher and something he's never done before. What if he missed? What if he hit the people, you know, the Spanish announced team? What if he hit the guardrail? What if he hit the concrete? Mick Foley could very easily be dead from that spot or certainly paralyzed. Well, and Mick was in complete control of the, of the bump the whole way. So at that point you have to look at him and have the confidence in him to either do it or not. And he's the one that's taking the risk and he's the one that, that has looked at it and feels that he can pull this off. Um, you know, we had, we had the table confidence and I get when you're saying he's in control, I understand that. Undertaker's not throwing him off, but I am saying you're leaving it up to a guy's judgment to hope that he's right on something he's never done before. And if he's wrong, you've just had a death on pay-per-view, like a horrific accident on pay-per-view. You can say that about any bump and you can say that about, uh, you can say that about anything. And unfortunately there, there have been horrific accidents that have happened on much simpler bumps. So me, that that's every day. Those guys take that risk. Let me ask. And this. it was a risk. And I think everybody knew it was a risk. I don't, you know, this is a weird question. I ask if the Owen accident had happened before this, there's no chance this bump happens, right? I don't think so. No, it's just weird to think about how so much of everything changes after those two things you know, this bump and which is obviously scripted and then a very real tragedy, but really a couple of things go differently here. And this could have been totally different in his book. Foley wrote about this, that cactus was sort of pitched this idea jokingly by funk. Maybe you should start on top and just let him throw you off. And he says it jokingly and Foley sort of jokes back. Oh, and then I can climb back up and he can throw me off again. And eventually he decides, wait, I think I can really do this. And he spends the next week or two trying to pitch the undertaker on less starting up top and undertaker shoots it down every time. And then eventually he says to cactus, why are you so intent on killing yourself up there? And Foley wrote that he answered because I'm afraid the match is going to stink. You can't walk and let's face it. I don't have any heat. We've got a heck of a legacy to live up to, and I don't want this match to ruin it. If we start out hot enough, we can make the people think we had one hell of a match, even if we didn't. Eventually the undertaker comes around to the idea. Did you have a conversation 
with Undertaker about climbing to the top of the cage with this hurt foot and then throwing a motherfucker off. Because even though we understand wrestling and Foley's really gonna, he's going to do it himself. The perception would certainly be different if this went poorly and it would affect the undertaker. And this is somebody he cares about who he's done a lot of business with. Who's doing this. Did you have a conversation before or after the match with undertaker? Well, I had, I had a lot of conversations with both Mick and undertaker before the match just, and, and frankly, after the match, just thinking, <sighs> think about what they were trying to top. They were trying to top Shawn Michaels from the middle of the hell in a cell, standing on a cross beam, taking that bump into the announcer's table, which was absolutely spectacular at the time. And Mick feeling he had to top that so that people wouldn't think the match sucked. And that's the part that, that always would get me. It's like, then what? <laughs> okay. Then how do we top that? And we, and we found ourselves in that position, you know, to where, when, uh, Mick and Hunter were on top of the cage and Mick took the bump again through the top of the cage, but we had the, the ring gimmick so that he went through it and it was completely safe. And we did practice that and we did make sure that went as planned beforehand. But it, it's, yeah, it's crazy, man. It was a different business. And guys, a lot of times they look at that and like you look at Mick Foley's legacy and that's in so many ways, that's his legacy, that bump, that night. Um, fact that he kept going and he was out of it. And the fact that, you know, when he comes back, he convinces all of us, no, got my bell rung, but I'm okay. I can go out, my shoulder's out, but but the doctor popped it back in. I'm fine. It's an easy spot that I got to go out and do with Steve. I've got it. I'm fine. That wouldn't happen today either. No, we haven't even gotten to that part. It's just crazy to think about that he came back out. He does sort of freestyle in the book that quote, I had missed the monitors, which was my biggest concern. Can you imagine if he'd have hit the fucking monitor? It never even crossed my mind until I read that in the book again this week. Well, the way that the monitors were in there for that. And if the, if the top had been off, that would have been an issue, but it was it, that part of it was actually safe because of the way they were positioned, there was no monitor in the middle. And they were on the outside and they were gimmick to go. And then later on, we just guys would get rid of them, which I always thought was silly. Why would you throw, if you're going to put a guy through a table, why are you throwing the monitors out of the way for a smooth, nice, even flat finish or flat, flat bump. If you want to hurt somebody, leave the monitors there. Um, but actually that part of it was really to me, the least of the worries to me, the, the worry was he hits that table and slid, you know, and just slid right off the damn thing. And as you say, either went into the barricade, went into the people. Um, there were just a lot of things, that, a lot of what ifs that you knock on wood and you thank God didn't happen. And it's, then the shit that was supposed to happen that did, you know, the, the, the other bump is like, fuck me. That's you, crazy. You know, Foley is critical of the way he took that choke slam, the one that put him through the cage, because he says it's the only time he didn't go high for an undertaker chokeslam. Understandably he's hurting here. I mean, he, he, Thank had to, God. he had to climb the cage 
you know, as you said, with a separated shoulder, which is probably not easy at 300 pounds. And so when he's finally up there, I mean, he just can't get up for him. So he winds up just falling into the cage, but he says that if he had went high, he's worried that he would have over rotated and landed on his head. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's to the point that Foley even wrote in his book, he asked the undertaker, Hey, what'd you think when you looked down from the top of the cage and saw me on the mat? And he says, undertaker didn't skip a beat and said, I thought you were dead. That's just scared shitless. And, and what's weird too, is, you know, when the undertaker finally gets down there, he says, Jack, let's go home. And Foley wrote that he said, no, no, I'm okay. Which is just amazing. Um, right. He's so out of it. He was, he's even asking the referee was I already on the stretcher once tonight. Yes. I mean, obviously we don't know back then what we know now about hand injuries. I mean, this would never happen, but it, it's just unbelievable. And, and you even referenced the whole. Sorry, I forgot the thumbtacks thing. When he comes to the back, is there like a standing ovation? What's the reaction when he comes through the curtain? I mean, this oh is something like out of a movie. Yeah, you know, Taker and Vince were right there for him and, and just hugged him, and it was definitely a standing ovation because it was an unbelievable performance. And people were concerned, first of all, for his well-being, thinking, how in the hell is he walking? Um, how did, how did he get up? You know, when he had the tooth up his nose, crazy. Well, we thought it was snot. You know, what's funny. We thought it was a big loogie. I watched this match this week and my person saw it for the first time. And she said, is that his tooth in his nose? Yes. Yeah. How did we thought there? it was snot at first. How did it get there? The hard way. It's crazy. Right through his lip. This person's still alive. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I I like to point (laughs) as much as I love Mick. uh, I like to point to some of the things Mick has done to young guys and say, don't, you don't need to do this. And Mick didn't need to do it. He really didn't. You know, when he's in the back and I guess we should talk about him because we have it here. You guys had like a chiropractor that people have asked a lot of questions about over the years who was help adjusting guys. What's his role here in trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Francois Petit and Francois Petit, uh, was a, he was a hybrid of a chiropractor, a kinesiologist. He did all these a lot of different crazy things, but people with a lot of athletes with unique injuries would often go to Francois and he would put them back together, um, manipulate their joints and their bones and everything. And, um, man, I've never been adjusted by anybody like, like Francois. I mean, he would hurt you. It hurt, but afterwards you felt better. Um, and he liked, you know, we call them Dr. Dr. Petit or Francois, he was sub-zero in the, uh, Mortal Kombat movie franchise. And he was a stunt coordinator 
things like that. More than anything, he was pretty much a crazy motherfucker. But he would pop guys back into place. I broke my ankle one time. He set my ankle, wrapped it, and I was done. And I could walk on the damn thing. Um, he was amazing like that. It, it was hard to explain. There, there were stories about him doing, okay, now don't laugh, him doing open heart surgery on people and repairing arteries without obviously opening them up just with his hands. And he would go in and do bypass surgery on people. That's real life. The fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Those were the legends of Francois Petit. But but guys would go and they would spend a couple days at his place in California. And that's how, you know, we came about him because he was putting people back together. And we thought, well, instead of having guys go to him, let's bring him to us and those that want to use him can use him as a chiropractor and to help them with their injuries and help them rehab and different things like that. So, but he could, yeah, he could pop a shoulder back in. He, it was always like, let me reduce it. I can reduce it. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, Vince Russo was a big fan of old Francois. Russo would go out and spend vacation and weeks out with Francois in California. And tells a great story about Francois racing Warren Beatty on uh, the Sunset Strip somewhere in California. But he was he was this this crazy crazy doctor. The real doctor that we had was Doctor Frank Romascavich, and that was the guy with the long hair at the very end of it. And they point him out. That's Doctor Romascavich. He was the real doctor that was there that actually stitched Mick up and fourteen stitches in the lip he got. And I assume that's also who's pulling the thumbtacks out of his person. That was Dr. Romascavich and Francois both. Yeah. With, with pliers, little needle nose pliers one by one. Process what we're talking about right here. So there's even footage of McMahon going to congratulate him and thank him for everything he's done for the company. But he says something like promise me, I'll never see you do anything like that again. Did you have a conversation with Vince after the match or do you remember what the interaction was? I mean, it feels like there's some sort of edict that has to come down. Like we've let this shit go too far. No more. Well, not only the, yes, there was, and it was also Vince recalling one of the reasons that he didn't want to hire cactus Jack in the first place was because of the stuff that Cactus used to put his body through and he, that Vince felt was unnecessary. So the fact that Vince let him do that and he's kind of looking at himself in the mirror and says, damn it, we, we can't, you know, I mean, he took responsibility for it. He goes, I can't let him do that self to him, do that to himself anymore. So it was brutal. A lot of soul searching. And we're not done as if that's not, as if that's not enough. Uh, Kane's out next and he's taking on Steve Austin in a first blood match. Now this is interesting because it's a first blood match. And one of the guys is completely covered arms, legs, hands, face. It's a first blood match. And the other guy, while he is the hottest star in the business, he's just spent three days in the hospital. Pretty crazy to think about Vince McMahon is watching this from the owner's box with Sable on his arm and 
in the middle of the match, the cage starts coming down and it gives the illusion that McMahon is behind it. And eventually, oh, I guess we should mention here. What is the stipulation? If Kane doesn't win his world title shot here, obviously if Austin loses, Kane becomes world champion. What if Kane loses? What happens? Bro, we're going to cover him in gasoline and set him on fire. And then he's gone forever. It's a good step. You help me understand how Vince McMahon co-signs this. God damn it, pal. We're not going to actually do it. That's how I don't understand. <laughs> We're not going to do it. God damn. It's entertainment. It's unbelievable is what it is. You guys had a set a motherfucker on fire step, which is just crazy. The mask gets three and a quarter stars. There is some, some fun stuff to watch here. One of the times when the cage is going up, Kane is laying, laying across it, teeter tottering, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of fun to see a seven footer do that. Uh, they're brawling everywhere. As we mentioned, Austin's fresh out of the hospital. He's got the elbow wrapped up. He's working with a staff infection here. Eventually, unbelievably mankind runs down to interfere with a chair. Eventually the undertaker shows up too, and he's limping along and they're playing dueling chairs. And mankind ducks a chair shot, which causes the undertaker to hit Austin who also had a chair. And then immediately Austin does the, the gimmick and he is pouring blood like a major, major, I mean, he hit a vein (laughs) and in the middle of all this, the undertaker goes and gets gasoline. This is real life folks. The undertaker gets gasoline and he doesn't pour it on Kane. He says, fuck this. And he poured it on the Hebner's. I don't know if maybe he got the Iggy that the Hebners were making fake merchandise or what, but he poured him full of gasoline and now Austin's bleeding a river and eventually everybody gets a stunner and the referee comes to, and you think that Austin's going to win, but he sees Austin pouring blood. It's a first blood match. He calls for the bell. Your winner, new WWE champion Kane. Yes. God damn it. Good shit. And actually, when you watch, when you watch it back, that was some pretty good shit. When you, you think about the peril that you put your champion in having a first blood match with a guy that's covered head to toe with a leather mask, his, none of his extremities are exposed. Not one. He's, he's talking with a voice box to his throat. Um, we could have cut his throat. Maybe. And if he bled there, that no shit, the thing went up his neck too. Forgot about that. Process but, what you just said. We could have cut his throat. He just well, flippantly just threw that out there. Well, it could happen. Deep, deep, deep. So you put your champion in such peril that the odds are astronomical to overcome, but they're not going to put the title on this big red monster. So it was, it was kind of must see. It's a must-see event because what? How do you get out of it? And that's how we got out of it. 
serious business. It is something nobody saw coming. Austin is the hottest act there is. And we should remember, and this is sort of funny too, that it all sort of surrounds the hell in a cell. Of course, the hell in a cell was first put on the map at bad blood in October of 97. The match is undertaker and Shawn Michaels and Kane interferes. That's where Kane makes his debut. Now fast forward eight months. And what do you know? Undertaker's in a hell in a cell, but now the cells involved and he interferes in Kane's match and Kane becomes world champion. It's weird the way it all sort of ties together and Paul bear is in the middle of all of it. And we see a shot of Vince McMahon as the pay-per-view goes off the air. And it's sort of interesting because Meltzer sort of freestyles that giving that shot to Vince McMahon at the end of the show sort of gives him the credit for the title instead of take, you know, having all that heat on Kane, Paul bear or the undertaker. Is he overthinking it? Yeah, he's overthinking it, but that's where the heat was, was on Vince. And I think that the, to me, the most amazing thing about the, this match and this night is I'm sitting there watching it was old timer. You go, how in the hell do you follow the hell in a cell match that we just saw? How do you follow that? And not remembering it all. And I'm watching Matt Kane and Austin came out and had that crowd red hot. They were just on fire no pun intended for stone cold, Steve Austin. They, they were into every single thing they did. There was no air taken out of the building. The crowd was into it from start to finish. And nobody predicted that outcome that night. No, I mean, I don't think anybody did. I mean, it is a pretty big moment. I mean, Kane's only been in the company a handful of months. He's the world champion. He's beat the hottest guy. Austin's bleeding like a stuck pig. It's something else, man. I don't even know how to describe this match. When you think about all the stuff that's going on, the fucking gasoline and everything in between. And as if that wasn't enough, as crazy as it is, Foley came back out. Yeah. Yeah. And took, and, and took a stunner. Unbelievable. Let's get to, uh, Twitter. We asked you to ask some questions about King of the ring, 1998. It's one of the most historic shows in history. So we were not, at a loss for questions here, Bruce. Are you ready? Ready. John wants to know how far back was the plan for Kane to have a one day title reign? Did they come up with it that day? Or was it always the plan to pop a big rating the next night with Austin winning the title back? Once they, once they booked the match, uh, the way they booked the match, and that was probably about two or three weeks out. That was the plan. Efron wants to know whose idea was it for the sale to come back down during the Austin Kane match? originally I think it was Pat Patterson's idea to, to bring it back down, thinking that you're going to get him get a second cell match. You know, what if, and they did it. Uh, Goolidge wants to know how was Steve Austin supposed to draw first blood with Kane since he had a mask and had his entire body covered. That was the exact question we wanted people to ask. And if anybody could have figured it out, stone cold could have. What are the, um, questions I have Conrad from Huntsville wants to know, first of all, shout out. And I think we have sort of glossed over this shout out to Mick Foley 
whether you agreed with it or not for making sacrifices that nobody before or after ever has for the wrestling business and all for the sake of our entertainment. Can we agree? Oh, wholeheartedly. We can agree. I mean, it's unbelievable what he's done. Here's what I want to ask though. In a weird way, does this match sort of ruin the hell in a cell? Because it does set an unrealistic expectation. I mean, you go back a handful of years when Charlotte and Sasha were in a hell in a cell and they were bragging that this is the first women's main event and blah, blah, blah. It's awesome. I agree. But there is an expectation where, I mean, even when Shane had this match with the undertaker, you're like, well, he's got to come off it. I mean, it's just not just because he jumps off of stuff, but there's been a precedent set now, right? There has been. And I, I felt that the same, I felt the same way when Sean did it. It's like, how do you top that? And guys are going to continue to try and top it. But I think that what they've done is they've kind of hit the reset button and gone, okay, we're not going to do that. And let's, let's go back. Um, and then Shane comes in and Shane does the, the giant bump off the top. So yeah, it's, it's a precedent that I think everybody that steps into a hell in a cell match wants to say, I'm going to outdo that. And that's a scary precedent. You know, I, I think I had a, like, um, a moment watching this show because I haven't watched it in so long. And I had this about a year or two ago with Jericho that maybe without me paying attention quietly, Jericho had become one of my all time favorites. And I would say, oh, he's top 10 for me. And he wasn't even in the conversation a few years ago, but I think I just matured a little bit and had an opportunity to not be so steadfast and know my favorites are this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I feel like I've had, I've sort of turned the corner on cactus too, where now he's like, oh, he's in my top 10. And my question is, cause we get this question a lot, various versions of this. Joshua wrote this one. I'll give you for instance, Mick Foley minus this match hall of fame career. Yes. I, th I think so too. Like I think so many times people just look at this match and say, this is it. And they don't really remember the empty arena match, the match with Royal rumble with the rock. The phenomenal matches he had two Sean match. prior to the, the match with Sean in Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, there's so many, I mean, don't even get me started on all the silliness he did in WCW, his matches with Vader. Oh God, that Halloween oh. havoc stuff and the stuff he did with sting and the, the stuff he did in Japan with, with, um, funk, even the stuff he did with flair years after this in the company, his promos and stuff, he just continually evolved and showed you. And I think that's what maybe I was missing with Jericho. And I realized maybe I was missing it with Foley is there's so many different versions and he evolved this character and his character so many times and gave you so many different dimensions of what he could do. I'm not knocking stone cold, Steve Austin. I know people think I don't like him, but he's the bad out. I mean, he's a badass. but at the same time, how many different versions did we see? And with Foley, man, you got 10 looks with the dude. You did. And, and I'll tell you again, you could just go back to four for me, when I knew that Mick was a player and the guy was when he first came in and did the stuff with Undertaker right off the bat. When Undertaker came back excited, going, holy shit, man, his stuff looks crazy, but he's safe as fuck. Um, and we went, okay, cool. We got something here. And it was the endorsement from taker that said, okay, man, I want to do stuff with him. Um, 
And then the match with Sean in Philadelphia, where people thought, how are you going to get something out of this with that gimmick and with Sean? And it was one of the best matches. You know, it's, it's, it's up there in that top five category, you know, of great matches of all time that you can go back and point to and say, that's something to watch because it was unique. Racing trends wants to know what's up with the off their heads tagline for this show. Off with their heads. That's what the Kings did back in the day, man. They used the guillotine and cut people's heads off. Paul wants to know what was the reaction backstage to Foley's fall? Well, more people, more people were more concerned with, with the fall, you know, and again to, I think the wrestling fan <laughs> that never had to take a bump in that ring or, or to know how hard it was for the non giving bump through the cage. That was more of a, Oh my God. Uh, even more so people were in awe and shocked. Um, and the initial bump through the table that was awe inspiring. But the second one was one of more concern and more like, holy shit, he is broken in half. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense to me too. Well, something that didn't make sense. Sergio brings up here. Why does the King always wear his tights to do commentary? That's a great question. Um, I don't know (laughs) just because he's the king. And I think Jerry just always wants people to know that he was a wrestler. James wants to know, was there ever any blowback from athletic commissions for matches like this or any sort of political fallout? There was in certain places like Baltimore, Maryland, where they had an athletic commission, um, Kentucky, where there was an athletic commission, Oregon, but that's why we didn't do them in those spots. Blake wants to know, was there ever any discussion of the hell in a cell match being retired after this night? No, not that I, I can think of. And, and it was also something that was talked about to be used very sparingly as like a once a year attraction and not just not to use it a lot. Stuart wants to know why didn't Bruce have a singles run versus Paul bearer? Because people would have looked at that and in a shoot world, I'd have killed him within 20 seconds because you're a three time black belt hall of fame. Hey, let me ask this. Uh, we got lots of questions about this. There's a famous line from commentary and you talked about it earlier where Jr. says they killed him. Who do you think they was (laughs) A, a, a lot of people are sort of making assertions that it's a Freudian slip. And it's a reference to they being the wrestling business, whether it's the fans or the pressure, or maybe it's they, the bookers and the guys making the decisions in the back, or maybe it's they, the undertaker. It's they, the undertaker. I don't think that, you know let's not get so deep here on conspiracy theory. Jr. was sending a message. No, no, I don't think that I just, you know, it does sort of speak to, I mean, cause Mick even wrote about it. He felt like he had to top the other match. Like he couldn't just go out and have a stinky match. I mean, I'm not saying this to be ugly, but there's a lot of guys who are like, bro, if that's what it takes and I have a bad match, I'm having a fucking bad match. Sorry. See you TV tomorrow. (laughs) 
I mean, because it's your job. And so he's like, no, I'm not having a bad match by any means necessary. I'm going to top that other one. People are going to be talking about this. Well, that's kind of professional Mick was. And, and he felt that it was his responsibility to do that. But uh, on JR, that was just, he meant the undertaker. I don't think that there was anything else there. Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. How would you rate it? You can't rate it. It it was one of the, it was a defining, it was a defining match and there was nothing to compare it to. So it was just truly one of those moments in time that people are going to look back to. And and you mentioned it earlier, Andre Hulk, Andre Hulk was an attraction, right? That wasn't, that wasn't a match. You go back and go, Oh my God, you got to see that spot where no, this was a match where there are so many holy shit moments that they top one another and the match itself is a story and it tells a great story throughout the match of what's going to happen next and how is this man still standing um so i yeah i'm you rate it one of the greatest of all time Anthony brings up something we sort of glossed over any funny stories about Terry Funk kicking his shoe off after the choke slam, <laughs> which is kind God of, damn. <laughs> he choke slammed me out of my goddamn shoes. <laughs> they came off cause they weren't tied. <laughs> cause when Terry ran down to the ring, his damn shoes weren't tied and God damn it. That son of a bitch. It was a good visual to me when you go back and you watch at the very end of the match, when Terry goes back out there to carry Mick back, you look and he's still just in his socks. Maybe the dumbest thing I've ever seen on one of our questions. Uh, Hey, do you have a question? Sean wrote Jr. really didn't need to oversell these bumps in the taker Mick match. We saw them. We know they hurt. (sighs) Okay. I mean, it is, is this the most famous call in wrestling history? I'm being serious. I mean, I thought the JR's call added so much to it. There was so much emotion there. And I think that the audience at home watching this was having pretty damn close to the same reactions that JR was having. JR's call was genuine and you felt it. So, um, Yes, I know we saw it, but I think that his call added that much more emotion to that bump and to that match. Chat me up here, though. Most famous call in wrestling history? It's got to be. One of, yeah. What's what's bigger? I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm just saying every year, you know, with hockey and especially football, there's going to be big hits throughout the season and inevitably somebody is going to take that footage and put JR's call over the top of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what, maybe for mainstream, it may be, but I, I look at some of the, the Austin matches and stone cold, stone cold, stone cold, which one, um, <laughs> weren't they all like that? That's what I'm saying though. If you can't pinpoint a one, then that's not one. That's not the most. Well, I'll, I'll give you one was in Boston, WrestleMania and Steve winning the title for the first time. In addition, Vince calling Shawn Michaels entrance at WrestleMania 12. 
which is one uh, of my oh. most charismatic. Oh, you mean the boyhood dreams come true? The boyhood dreams come true, but also the entrance where he's coming down on the wire. And oh my God, look at him. He's the most electrifying, the most charismatic. He is the one, the only, the heartbreak kid, Sean Michael. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. It's Cobra Commander. I'm just telling you. Well, listen, man, I don't know how else we can really describe this match. We've talked about it for a long time here and, and, and there's no way we could do a show that even does this thing justice. You know, they probably should have stopped this. They shouldn't have let him come back out. He shouldn't have taken the second bump. A lot of shoulda, woulda, couldas, but in the end they made history, man. And nothing like this will ever be seen again. I hope not. I mean, yeah. I mean, for goodness sake, it shouldn't happen, but it is one of those deals where you know, as much as I can say it shouldn't have happened, I sure am glad it did because this was awesome. It was, and it's one of those moments in history that will, like you say, um, I certainly hope that nobody ever, I, I certainly hope no one ever tops it because it deserves to be up on the top of the mountain. I'll tell you what, somebody who doesn't deserve to be up at the top of the mountain is the subject of our next something to wrestle. And we've talked about him for years now. And it's finally going to happen. July the 6th, set your calendar, boys and girls. We're talking about Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. You know, this week was the best of times. Next week, it's the worst of times. I'm going to be using his book as our source material. Bruce, have you read his book yet? I have not read his book yet. Well, I have, uh, beefer was nice enough to send me a copy and I got to tell you, it's a pretty damn good book and we're going to go ahead and throw you up a link so you can check this out. Uh, so you'll have an idea of what we're going to talk about next week, but it's called strutting and cutting the autobiography. It is available on Kindle as well. You can pick it up on Amazon, but we're going to go ahead and throw a link up. Uh, no, we're not getting paid to do this, but Listen, if you're looking for source material on Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake, you'll take what you can get. All right. And, and this book is what we can get. So I recommend it. It is a pretty good book. It is what I'm going to be talking about next week here with Bruce. And, um, we're up against a really not great anniversary. Of course, this was the anniversary of Mick Foley nearly killing himself. Well, the 4th of July, which goes down next week is when Brutus had his horrible accident. Uh, so we're going to talk about that accident that sort of derailed his career and uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly next week here on something to wrestle coming up in July for the rest of the month. I'll go ahead and give you the rundown. We've got Muhammad Hassan the following week. One of the most controversial figures in the history of the company. We're going to be covering him on July 13th, July 20th. We've got the invasion pay-per-view. That's going to be just a couple of years or a couple of days, rather shy of the anniversary of that pay-per-view. And then on July 27th, we've got Vengeance 2003, which is the 15-year anniversary of Vince McMahon and Zach Gowan, which is exactly what you hope it was. Brother Love is there doing a bar stunt as well. So don't forget to go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Tell your friends all about us. And we've got two pretty hot episodes coming up on the WWE Network. I know we don't want to spoil the season one finale, but do you want to go ahead and tell them what they're going to see this Wednesday on the WWE Network? Well, I'd rather tell them what they're going to smell a what the con is cooking what well you know 
We're going to be all about the Rizok. I don't know. I hate when you call him that. The fucking rock, 97.98, not the Rizok. We're not was off with his house and we're not selling to z-shirts but if we were you could go to bruzu's prisichard not kizom there you go and or just go to brucepritchard.com why would you why would you say it like that (laughs) well because well are you gonna ever kiss all or is that all just a gizimic at this point because i feel like a lot of people are saying you never kiss all well i do kiss all but i get a lot of uh voice answering machines and i'm getting i'm getting there i'm getting down i'm getting damn through it right, hang on help me out voice answering machines doesn't you know those, not, vo- you know those voice answering machines there's not with a, the little tape recorders there's not a, a gimmick way of saying that there's no carny way of saying voicemail this was miss l but instead you said voice recording answering machines well, ain't that what they are no they're not but I tell you what, we are. We're excited to be coming to the UK finally. Go pick up your tickets right now, man. We're going to be there before you know it. It's this December, and we're bringing Cody Rhodes and Flip Gordon with us. Uh, Jimmy Havoc, the list goes on and on and on. You can go to UKSTW.com. That's UKSTW.com. And Boston, this is going to sell out. Kowloon's, while it is a phenomenal restaurant, not a huge venue. You want to snatch your tickets up right now. Don't you dare miss it. Tickets are on sale. BrucePritchard.com is where you can get it. And of course, next week here in Rochester, we're coming to see you, man. Don't miss us. We're coming to your town. Who knows when we'll be back in Rochester. We're going to be at the comedy at the Carlson next Saturday night. And you can snatch those tickets right now at BrucePritchard.com. All sorts of other shows are on sale as well. I know the San Antonio WWE pay-per-view was finally officially announced with an on-sale date. We're still going to be there for you on September 15th. Nashville, we're sold out for September 30th, but New York, you can catch us in August. And of course, we've got lots of other shows along the way, including a trip to Los Angeles on sale now at BruceFritchard.com. Still working on San Jose slash San Fran. We're not giving up on you just yet. And of course, in January for the Royal Rumble, we're going to be there in Phoenix. You can check us out right now at BruceFritchard.com. Anything else we need to plug for you this week, Bruce? Man, I think we're ready to rock and roll. Well, let's do it. And don't forget to support our sponsors. And if you'd like to advertise on the show, hit our man up, Goldberg himself. Hey, hey, advertising at gmail.com. And don't forget to support forhims.com forward slash WWE. And don't forget to text 79-79-79-79, the word slam. And we're going to get your gimmick going, man. Get your hair looking good. Get you feeling good. And uh, you're going to love the way you feel because you supported something to wrestle. and Didn't have to spend an arm and a leg to do so. And we'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with the Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake edition. Hey, something to wrestle fans. It's dirty. Doc Hendricks with your something to wrestle slam jam. Yeah, we haven't chatted since Bad Blood 2003. Oh, yeah. But I'm back getting you all set for next week's show about Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. That's right. It's all about BTFBB. We're going to find out how many times it was DTTTT time for him and HH on STW. It's going to be all the way live. Let me tell you something, Doc. I just want to say right now, brother, that I never once helped Brutus get a job, man. He deserved everything he got, dude. And by the way, if you have something coming up next week, I got a friend who might need some work, brother. But 
that's another story, Jack. Listen to the power of all the Hulkamaniacs out there. Listen to something to wrestle, brother. You know, something tells me there's going to be an awful lot of Hulkster in next week's episode about old brother Brudai. It's going to be a good one. Make sure to check it out now. And also, check out the ADCs of wrestling if you like the current product and you want to hear a super special spooky appearance from The Undertaker talking about NXT TakeOver and Money in the Bank. You need to check out this week's episode wherever you get your podcasts. It's the ADCs of wrestling. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, Steve Austin trashed his basement, and ADC's not too happy about that. Oh, shit, I might have stopped a few mud holes, but I walked them dry. Tune into the podcast to find out what happens when he gets home and finds my ass living it up in his basement. ADC, ADC can kiss my ass, and that's the bottom line, because basement Steve said so. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.